This is Paul. This is Caroline. Welcome back to our continuing coverage of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This is for Season 5, Episode 7, The House Full of Lame Horses. I'm paraphrasing there, but that's the... That's the gist of it, the house full of lame horses. And they really did a good job of showing what a house full of lame horses might look like. If you catch your own family looking this way, maybe this is a cautionary tale. Like if you don't know how to how to um, do these things in Zelda's book, maybe you're part of the problem. You might be a, a lame horse. Not only that, but I also think it gives you the verbiage if your family is being super unhelpful and acting inept. Now you have the, the right wording. You can call them a house full of lame horses. And I'm sure they'd appreciate that ancient... <laughs> are we to believe that uh, Janusz is uh, Russian or Polish somewhere in that, that area? I think Polish, yeah. Because remember, she was, Zelda was making like some sort of like Polish soup or something at one point. So I was kind of assuming that was... Janusz's uh, influence. Well, this episode did not start with a flash anywhere, but it did feature both flashbacks and flash forwards to facilitate the storytelling. It was written and directed by Amy Sherman Palladino, and they. Um, I would highly suggest if you guys watched this one and you felt like you didn't get it all, please go back and turn on your closed caption because the conversation between Zelda and Janusz is key to understanding that entire storyline and if you don't have the closed caption on you're not going to get any of it so uh please make sure your closed captions on for this one you know each each episode doesn't necessarily come with any kind of moral or lesson or anything like that but this one maybe did feel like it came with that pairing the focus that midge puts on herself in the 1961 timeline versus what she's doing for her mom in the 1973 timeline. Well, I think that there was definitely some commentary about parenting here. There was definitely some, you know, maybe you need to rethink your stereotypes, you know, especially of, you know, like the firstborn boy is going to be like this. And and certainly that unravels in this episode. So I think that there's some some things that make you think. For me, this was like a setup episode. Like, I feel like we got people and we put them in different positions and then we made comments on where they were at that point in time. And they are all like jumping off points, like every single one of these things that happen all needs like a conclusion to what is going on with it. So this was not one that was like wrapping storylines up as much as like starting some new storylines for us. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, Midge is left in a bad spot at the end. Rose, we have no idea how this party is going to work. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit. Let's start with that 1973 commercial shoot for Rose's matchmaking business, because I was actually very surprised to see Midge and Susie on set. Very supportive, very encouraging. I felt like everything we were seeing seemed surreal. I felt like we were watching like, remember in Greece when they do like beauty school dropout and like all of a sudden we're like in the clouds and like we're in heaven and they're angels and all this. Like it felt kind of like that kind of production where you're like, what am I seeing here? But of course, the huge, huge nuggets of information we get is that Midge is obviously financially very successful and is paying for all of Rose's I'm going to use air quotes business uh, endeavors here because it sounds to me like it's really just a passion project of hers at this point, certainly not a money making business. And then we get this health scare 
just dropped on us of like she doesn't have very much time left. All of these are like big setups to like, well, fill us in. What's going on with Rose's health? What happened with Midge's financial you know, success? I, I want to know more. And it was all stemming out of that commercial. That health scare bit, I don't know the right terminology to use when you have somebody with an end of life diagnosis like is implied here. But we know from another flash forward, the previous episode, that she still makes it to 1975. Now, I'm not wishing Rose to die any earlier than she has to in the storyline, of course. However, I am I was just thrown a little bit like in the brief time she has left. That made me think six months, something like that. But we mm-hmm. know she's still got at least two years. And when you're super sick, it's unusual to travel far from your doctor's. It's a big question mark. I mean, she was wearing like a turban kind of headpiece during her commercial. Now that could just be the look of the time, which they're definitely in the 70s. Women did wear stuff like that. But also that kind of looks a little like maybe she was going through chemotherapy or maybe she, you know, was losing her hair. Or maybe uh, it was maybe. thinning, you know, that kind of thing. Because we do see Rose wear hats, but it's pretty unusual. We see the women wear hats indoors. So even in this commercial setting, I feel like that would be it was, it was a little unusual unusual. So that's where I was leaning, especially because we've had some other layered in things like, like we need to stop smoking because of cancer. That's been kind of out there, you know, just quietly. It's, it's going on over at the the Gordon Ford show. If you guys are thinking, where, what is she talking about? That's where they were kind of like layering that in. Like maybe possibly they were giving us a little foreshadowing there. I definitely think that you can tell by Midge's demeanor that it's serious, you know, what her illness is serious because she so wants to make everything happen for her mom and and is willing to like redo the shoot as many times as it takes. The fact that she purchased the building, I mean, I just I'm thrown like this is amazing and obviously great success for her. So again, it, it like piqued my interest on the midge side too, the successful side of like, wow, we're very close to finding out what the big break is, like when it's going to really happen. You make a good point about that 1975 um, wedding vignette we got with them because I didn't take a good look at Rose. I remember Abe talking a lot about the cost of the cake, but I have to go back and look that and I'll invite our our listeners to do the same thing. Go back and look at her and see, does she look two years into an illness? I think she is wearing a hat in that scene. So um, I'll be curious to, to see if she does look thinner or weaker or if they in any way made her look sickly, you know, because I didn't pick up on that. But because they're aging them, there was like kind of no reason to think of anything other than aging. Well, and in the case of the commercial, all of the stuff she was wearing, I took to be costuming. Well, and of the time, though, like those those think of like Mrs. Roper on um, <laughs> Three's Company, right? No, those big like muumuu dresses. Oh, that was yeah. like the 70s. That was of the time. That's fashionable to be wearing something like that. It sounds it looks so odd on Rose because we're so used to her wearing like tailored suits, you know, little like nice little put together outfits. But like this muumuu look, I mean, that's just like of the time. But again, if she's not feeling well, you know, if she is, maybe she put on weight, you know, who knows what's going on? There's just, there could be stuff going on under that muumuu that is being hidden right now from us. So that's future times. The Midge and uh, Susie bit, they are still working together. Susie is still using the full weight of her uh, growing influence to throw around with, you know, she's she's trying to look out for Midge, but she also will, will do what Midge asks. 
I thought she was being like incredibly supportive and encouraging at the commercial shoot. So yeah. I like and, and not that I would expect any different exactly out of her because it was made clear that this was like a family project we were doing here. But then like going back to like where Rose is going to host the big event and looking for this venue and everything. She was looking over at the Maisel's house to do a, do her event over there. And that wasn't going to work. That was all so funny and wacky. And then she, you know, she's thinking she's going to do it at the apartment. But we have this Ethan flooding the apartment thing. Now, this whole moment with Ethan that Midge has where she's like, what have I told you about putting stuff down the drain? And he's like, nothing. You've like never talked to me about the drain. <laughs> that entire conversation, it was funny and it was honest. But I think it was what so much of the audience members have been saying. Like, she's never parenting. She's never mothering. Of course, she hasn't had a conversation about sticking stuff down the drain. Zelda probably has, but certainly Midge hasn't. So to me, there, there was like, there was some recognition on her face of like, oh, crap, what other things have I not told him? Or have I not like bestowed on my children here? That's how I got what was frustrating Midge and what was even upsetting Midge was like she wasn't really doing anything right, if you will, in this episode. That's I mean, that's true, but it's also relatable as a parent. You feel like you have given your kid the building blocks <laughs> to understand a certain thing by you told him this, you told him that you think that A plus B should equal C and it doesn't. It doesn't. And, and you know, I appreciate that. It's funny. She probably has said, like, don't stick your boat down the kitchen drain or something like that, you know, but like because you didn't specify the bathtub drain. Like there's like no generalizations going on there about like, oh, yeah, I shouldn't do that. It, the whole thing, Ethan, in this in this entire episode, I'm a little speechless of how they handled this entire thing because of like how they did make him out. And since we know his future is basically being like he wanted a very simple life, like farming and, and going back to Israel and having this sort of like go back to your roots kind of feeling. And, you know, there's something about Ethan that was like very eye opening in this entire episode. Of course, we have the Esther twist to the whole thing here. But just Ethan and this like, let's get into Abe and like going to the parent teacher conference, you know, in Midge's place, which already are we all like giving her an eyebrow that like no parent could go. Well, you stated earlier in our season's coverage, pursuing a, a different point other than the parent availability, but you stated earlier that a lot of the theme of this season in particular has been underestimating women. Uh, it happens on the Gordon Ford show. It happens here. It happens there. And it's like the B plot for this episode, or the, maybe the C plot, was a way to also drive that home for Esther at the expense of Ethan. Well, I think that it explains to us, like, again, since we have the the future flash forwards, like, we know that she is very successful in this scientific field. And, you know, she is extremely smart and very impressive. And so then, you know, to have Ethan, you know, we've also seen him. And I'm not saying there's anything not impressive about being a farmer, but it is a more simple life that Ethan has chosen. And he made the choice, it seems, to live this life where he's like farming the land and just having this much more like getting out of the city. I mean, he grew up in New York City and he's choosing to work on a farm like this is a fish out of water big time. But it actually kind of feels like it's not once you get to know him as a little kid. It's like, no, it wasn't so weird that he would seek out something like this, because as it turns out, he's not 
like Abe and and Esther, you know, and Midge for that matter. The little bits that we pick up on and, you know, ever since watching Kevin Can F Himself, which is a different show, totally different show. But one of the precepts of that show or concepts that drive that show is that you never notice or never really add up or aggregate all of the little asides that are said about side characters on your TV shows. That's very purposeful in that show, specifically with Kevin's dad, that if you listen to everything that they say about Kevin's dad, you have this guy that was like a priest who might have been a contract killer, or, you know, some, some different... Yeah, who, who <laughs> we think Kevin's mom was like a nun. Like, it was like, he was like, had an affair with a nun, like, but he was like faking to be a priest, like the whole thing. He was like a con man, but they never shine light on that. It's and, just, you're right, these side comments. And it's similar with Ethan, where... In each episode, since he's never featured, you just get these little Ethan's doing this today. Isn't that annoying or isn't that cute or isn't that quirky or whatever the right emotion is. But you add it up and you get this kid that needs to be talked to about being um, frightened of different things. He has to go through counseling. He has to do this exercise with the sleeping in the hall. He's a more emotion driven intuitive kid than a fifth than i guess a like data driven thinker uh, especially in elementary grades where that kind of thinking i guess <laughs> gets you designated happy rather than problem solving and and in the uh, little engineers club but yeah it, it it is all adding up to a character and a future rather than just these weird little things that happen in every episode that don't connect Exactly right. And I think that this whole concept that he would be wanting to find happiness, like at school, this entire thing, we have Abe, of course, you know, he is just absolutely losing it at this parent teacher, like, and I want to call it not even really a conference, but it seems like almost sort of kind of like an open house kind of thing. Like, you're uh, welcome the to day, come and open see. House, like, well, there, I feel like they were like, the kids were like showing their different work, right? So, sure, so yeah. that's not so unusual. So, so it was like they were coming and they were seeing the different activities that they do throughout the day and just sort of like catching up on everything and I thought his school seemed so wonderful you know when they were first like showing like oh this is like the basically like this little engineering group and like you know the builders and we have like the little science kids and it was all so cute and like wonderful and then you have this like little happy group which Abe's mind is just well blown he, <laughs> he I think maybe a more charitable modern take on the happy group is the late bloomers uh, they, they haven't hit their stride just yet, and they are still. And I am a enjoying... captain late bloomer, so I feel like I'm like I have no idea. They're just fine. We're we're not going to put any other label on them than that. I don't think is there any use in that. But you're right. Abe cannot handle the idea that his that his grandson is somehow not a genius as six. And we already really know this about the Wisemans, but if you really just take this moment in time, I mean, this is as distilled down as you can get. Abe does not value pursuing happiness. That is a useless and meaningless goal as far as he's concerned. So if that doesn't tell you all you need to know about why they don't understand what Miriam does day in and day out, this is it. This tells you. She's constantly saying, I'm trying to fulfill my own happiness, do what I'm like I'm called to do kind of thing. And happiness is unacceptable as any type of reason so i think this was a really wonderful like i guess i want to i want to say like gelling of that idea like now we're seeing it across the whole family 
But does it feel like this point is a little out of whack with the timing? Like if this was Columbia, Abe, this makes a lot more sense, especially sort of the hissy fit that he throws about it. But this is Village Voice, Abe. This is following his muse, Abe. And that timing feels a little more, a little different, or at least he... At least maybe we're supposed to be getting that there's some internal conflict with Abe because he's living one thing, but he's still kind of functioning off of these ideals that he kind of dismissed for himself in some ways, not always, because we saw him obsess about the... That's what I was going to say. So that's what I was going to say. Like, I, I think he went into the Village Voice with the concept of like this was something that was going to make him happy. But if you actually look at the work that he's done and the way that he's angst over his pieces over the the mistake you know the typo yeah. over you know how he was being perceived like reputation wise like i don't know i don't see him smiling a lot at the village voice you know i think he went there thinking he wanted to make a difference he thought he needed to have this expression in a different way and that's all good but i don't think that happiness I don't think he still even has his arms around it, you know, of like what that is, or at least he's not embracing it in terms of he could just enjoy himself. I swear. I mean, the people at the Village Voice are kind of like, cool out, you know, like try to enjoy yourself. But I still don't think he manages to. He's making an effort, but I don't think he actually <laughs> he won't let himself just relax and be happy. He's a little old for having such an intense internal conflict about it. I mean, I'm not saying you should should, quote unquote have that put together by a certain age but i don't know a lot of the older men that i've met they have figured it out by then <laughs> for well, better either, or worse I, I think that we've seen a really huge character arc for abe i mean we've seen him go from the true professor you know absolutely just stringent with the students and everything that was going on to working at someplace like the village voice and and actually embracing the arts and really spending time on that side of his personality. But I think while it's a different side of his personality, it's not necessarily a happy side of a personality. Do you know what I mean? I think he's just indulging a different portion of his hobbies and his talents, which happens to be art and music and theater and those types of things. And so it's a different facet, but it doesn't make him like this gregarious laughing man just because he's not having a a job that you and I would consider not as serious as being this college professor, right? I don't think we should mistake that. Like the opposite of Columbia is not happiness. The opposite of Columbia is using his creative, more artistic mind. But it's not a happy, sad thing. Yeah. Does that make sense? It's just a different aspect of his mind. But that's why I think he's so confused where he's like trying to explain that people who are successful are not happy people, you know? And I, I thought about that for a while, that quote of no one that's ever accomplished anything has been happy. Do you think that that's true? No. No? No. Tell me. I think I've seen what he's talking about, and I definitely have worked with some people that seem so... I don't even know if there was an aspect of their personality that didn't involve what I knew about them from work. <laughs> and that seems impossible, but they didn't expose that stuff at work. So I never got to see anything besides that. And those people seem really like boring to me, like super uninteresting, but also like it's a big question mark in my head. How can you put so much 
into your job here at this gigantic corporation? Like how 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 can that how can that be? I mean, I understand that there are rewards in a way, but right. there's no like I don't know. I guess maybe it's just the idea of like an intrinsic feeling of satisfaction coming from work that you're doing for shareholders see i think we're i see i think we i think that you and i are are, like we we have a hard time relating to workplace allegiance or feeling that obligation to give it your all at work like everything you are partially because we have a large complex family that requires our time and so it's not possible for us to balance our life in the same way that other people do or i or i should say maybe the other way it would be impossible for us to not balance our life with the family side because our family just has so many varying needs for for those of you guys who don't listen to us all the time we have three special needs kids so for us i do think we have a different point of view i had a realization only in the last couple of weeks and this is going to make me sound so out of of touch this is a this is breaking news everyone yeah no truly but it's going to make me sound so out of touch like i don't even live on earth okay but it's like what i realized all right hang on on. there's a sound effect for that All right. right, Now I'm going to sound extra insane. My thing was that I just realized how many people spend so much time, a great chunk of their life with coworkers who they never chose to hang around with or chose to necessarily be at that office in that place or whatever. And the amount, like just the percentage of time that is spent with those people versus your personal choices, whether it's the people you hang out with or the activities you do or the, you know, everything. I know it is the quintessential work-life balance that I'm talking about. And I'm sitting here being like, I'm gobsmacked that so many people are so out of whack with their work-life balance. But I am because I was a teacher and educator before I was like out of the game here for a long time. Even in that setting, it was me and all these little kids. But like, I didn't have like I had coworkers, but like I saw them in the faculty lounge. But it wasn't like I was working with these coworkers on projects or like I was like heavily involved in their personal lives or something like that because it wasn't like that. I was still like singularly working alone, but I just had these little kids that I was working with. Right. So it's like, I I don't know. I know this sounds really, really odd, but the whole concept of like you have to throw yourself into your work and your work is who you are and where you spend the majority of your time. It really blows my mind. I mean, we have a third partner here at Pod Clubhouse who is is an attorney. He spends an inordinate amount of time talking with clients or his coworkers. And it just always strikes me that it's like, wow, I mean, half these people you've never met, half these people, you know, you certainly don't want to necessarily choose as a friend. And then it's like, it's just how much of your life is spent with them. I know this sounds silly because you're like, Caroline, I've been in the workforce since I was 16, of course. But somehow the percentage of it, it really made me sad. And it really made me feel like this is messed up. Like the way we do stuff is really messed up, like as a society. Well, you add to that. um, Wait, did I wow you that I had that realization just now (laughs) well i think you've been working on that realization actually i think you've expressed that realization in parts to me because i've you know known you for a very long time so um i've heard some of that in bits and pieces but i think to support that point before we get back to the 
this show is that well it's that about you, the show it really is because you, it's about like work versus home and like where should you be putting what are you allowed to do things that make you happy is that is that a a bad way to spend your life and i feel like for abe it is like you I'm have not saying to work. That work shouldn't make you happy or can't make you happy or that truly successful people can't find happiness in their work but i am gonna s support your comment with real life and abe's plot where he had a bad day one day at work and they kicked him out forever and if you get laid off from your real job these people who you've poured hours into they are erased from your life isn't that so weird <laughs> it is it is i think it is crazy and and that was actually that was like the end the last part of my comment was like that honestly like and then you can just like never see them again like you can simply get another job and all those people that you could have spent like a decade with day in day out i mean you just go home to go to bed pet your cat go to bed like uh, i i don't know i i know i know people are listening are like wow caroline like way to like be a grown-up but moments like this in the show where it is just so loudly proclaiming to me as someone who I own a business and obviously we have a podcast career. It's so different because I choose who I talk to. I choose who I hang out with. It's very different than being in a workplace. And so for us, I'm like, I just can't relate to this very well. And I really, I get it when Abe is like sitting here, like saying like, you can't put like such a big uh, emphasis on being happy. That's not important. What's important is being successful and being, you know, I guess. And by that, I guess, I mean, financially, because I don't really know. Well, I, mean, I think when you get people that came up at any time, either through or just after the depression, I think you have a whole other outlook on security versus happiness. And happiness is a luxury. I mean, let's not be silly. I mean, yeah. 99.9% .9 of people absolutely have to work. This is not a choice. They, you know, they don't get to sit around and say, oh, how odd it is that I spend so much time with my coworkers. Like, no, I mean, obviously, this is where I was saying I sound like I'm from another planet. Like, I understand. I certainly understand. I, I'm speaking almost more like culturally that we accept that as a society. Like, it's cool. You, you spend how much time looking for that special, special person you're going to spend the rest of your life with to kiss them goodbye and see them for a half an hour every day and go spend all the rest of your time with people you never chose to even look at, <laughs> you know? It's such a strange phenomenon. We should return to the show. Yeah, we should. So <laughs> this is, so then for all of this stuff with Ethan to get sort of twisted around, and again, I feel like Abe really put Midge's feet to the fire on like the aptitude test and what he's capable of. Which, do you remember those aptitude tests? Do you remember us doing that? Oh, sure. Yeah. What do you think of those things? Like, I mean, do you think that they're actually like, like, should they be concerned that a six-year-old has like no aptitude in anything other than happiness? Um, no. I believe that they can serve as a starting point, that they can get you going on a path. They might even get you thinking about things that you've never thought of before, but they don't account for um, what you want, your work ethic, your just all, all different kinds of uh, other aspects that go into uh, what you could be doing with your time. And so 
No. Like, I don't even think that's real well. Mine, uh, yeah, I remember. Wait, can I, can I just say this real quick? Sure. Like, I would, I would also throw out that the concept of the aptitude test doesn't take into account opportunities you actually have. So, and I think that plays into like some of the results you got. But like thinking about the fact that Ethan actually ends up going to Israel be- to become a farmer, you know, he grows up in New York City. If it came back that he should be a farmer on that piece of paper, there would be like no basis for that, where he's living and what he's doing. Do you know what I mean? Like there's no one there who's going to help him become a farmer, you know? Yeah. So it doesn't take into account, like what are the opportunities? What, you know, if it said you should work for an oil and gas company, but you live in Idaho or something, I don't know, some random place, like it's like, okay, so that's not an opportunity for you. What else should you be doing? My college aptitude test, after three years of college, I was flailing with what I needed to be doing, what should, what I should be doing. My majors had fluctuated widely up to that point. And so we thought an aptitude test couldn't hurt. Well, I can tell you afterwards, it sure didn't help <laughs> because the results had very helpful things like sewing room manager and puppeteer. Now tell why this is extra funny and wild for us. It's extra wild because our son is completely enamored with puppeteering. And and would love to be the manager of a sewing room. How weird is that? I think I would make a horrible sewing room manager. I think I'd probably make an excellent puppeteer, but but I never pursued. If you do say so yourself. I never pursued that. Whereas sewing room manager, I don't know anything about sewing and I don't want people reporting to me. So yeah, totally wrong. (laughs) Totally wrong. <laughs> but weirdly, I think your DNA, though, like matched that. Oh, you, you think that like filtered down? Yes, that's what I'm saying. It's so freaking weird that like, how did our kid end up being like a great sewer? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, he's sewn like all these costumes. He's done all this stuff. You and I, neither of us have any interest nor aptitude for sewing. No. Yet this kid is just like whipping out these Elton John costumes on the sewing machine. It's like, meanwhile, you got the sewing machine manager well, on remember, your test. My so grandfather weird. was uh, an what? upholsterer. Yeah, he's an upholsterer. Maybe he just skipped to skipped a couple of generations. A couple, yeah. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> sort of, sort of like uh, how Abe can't explain how Esther winds up with appreciation yes. for everything that he likes. There was something about the idea of specifically picking one child and like pointedly sitting there teaching them a skill and then having another kid who you never took any time to show this particular skill just naturally pick it up and just be doing it. I think we've seen that in our own household where it's like, oh my gosh, like I never showed her how to do that. How does she even know how to do that? What is that? You Mm, know? And it's like, we're always like thrown, but it's also always feels miraculous like i didn't teach them that how do they even know that which is like hilarious and very like egotistical like they're little beings unto themselves like she saw and heard everything that abe was saying with ethan so it's not like she was in a vacuum you know she could hear it but it was like it was just fascinating to me and what a reveal that it is like this is how they figured out that esther actually had all these gifts and we got to see that even though there was no fanfare there was no like beating you over the head like hey if this is a very special episode where we find out that esther is gifted you know it wasn't like that it was just like you said the c plot 
But now we get where that little girl ends up where we saw her in the therapist office in the pilot or not in the pilot, but in the first episode of this season. How subtle can you get, you know, to like very quietly just connect the dots for us? I think that we'll see that Abe is fully prepared to switch gears off of Ethan and <laughs> focus his his laser-like tutelage on Esther. What is going to be interesting to me is if in that process, he finds respect for Midge. If he starts to see his daughter differently than his son, you know, who his son was like, you know, the scientific, you know, he works for Bell Labs and all that stuff. And, and what else? There's a couple of other things like, well, Columbia. yeah, but like other things. I almost want to say he's like in the CIA. He had patents and, and yeah, he had all kinds of stuff. But yeah, but like the idea that like, will he open up his eyes that Miriam actually has all these talents and skills and maybe in this weird twisting way, it's like has more respect for Esther, but then maybe kind of starts to have some sort of understanding of like Miriam and maybe ethan at some point but i i would like to think that that's what it's leading to well i think it is i think i think there's going to be a payoff for the running gag that neither the wisemans nor the mazels have any concept of what midge does they don't understand it they don't know how she could be doing it they just don't get it it's different than just kind of breaking or, or, or busting her chops and never giving her the credit that she's due and sort of that familial like, yeah, yeah, you're a big deal kind of way. It's I, it's I think it's legitimately the wires don't connect in their brains about what she says she does and then them understanding that that's even a thing. And I think that will pay off. That'll be like one of those final episode payoffs where they are like, that's her, that's my daughter, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? I hope we get to see them actually like take some ownership and be proud of her and actually say like, that's my daughter. Like that would make me so happy for her, like so fulfilling. I don't know. I think it's asking an awful lot of these characters. I don't know if we get to the stage of them being actually proud of her, but having some understanding, like, I mean, we can get into the whole situation going on with with uh with midge and she she has a she has a really rough day you know in this entire episode and i'm saying that figuratively because it's more than one day but she really really has a rough go in terms of just everything i mean obviously the whole parenting situation she can't seem to do anything right when it comes to this this flooding situation with ethan and and she's really realizing that she doesn't know how to do things around the house she can't help fix the stuff for rose and she's just having to send abe to the open house and i want to be clear on that because i did speak about this in a previous episode for quite a long time that like i have no issue the mother does not need to be the one who's always at open house <laughs> I want to be clear about that because it is a village situation and I am, you know, my own mother would attend things. Certainly if I was working full time, other family members would have helped out more. But it was like one of those things that it felt like she was really feeling badly. Like, ah, oh, crap. Like, how am I going to be able to go everywhere and do everything? So I was glad that Abe just stepped in and did it. But it was a lot. And then even the fact that Zelda had left them that big old binder, you know, with all the information, which looked so familiar, I feel like. We've had one of those binders in our house. Not not quite as um, thorough. I definitely was not writing stuff about how to relight a pilot light. But certainly everything to do with the kids and everything, all the medicines anyone needed or, or what time they ate or anything like, certainly there was these kind of binders. And I would have been hella pissed if people weren't reading the binder if they were acting like they didn't know how to do things. Well, I mean, that, Janusz is not wrong. 
they will never learn for themselves as long as they have Zelda as the backstop. I mean, when the kettle started going off, I was legit concerned that no one in the room besides Zelda knew what to do with a boiling kettle. I love that. You're like, I'm genuinely concerned. <laughs> well, didn't that seem legit? I mean, that's like, this is going on a long time, guys. Are no I one going to get I, up? No one knows it, what to do? I'm so thankful that we had those episodes now of understanding Rose's upbringing and understanding what a privileged life she had. So we got to see that she lived a very privileged life and the idea that she would have never lit a pilot light. She would have never even been making her own tea. I find it more fascinating that they haven't bothered to hire another housekeeper. That part is like, okay, mainly because me and you watch Maud all the time. And those are just two adults living in a house who can do everything as well. But yet she's always trying to hire a housekeeper and that's always messy. So, you know, I feel like there's there's something to it. Right. That's like, yeah. I wonder, I guess they're just again, they're so fascinatingly myopic with everything they're doing. They never pay attention to what anyone else is doing, including being like, there's no housekeeper here anymore. Like we need to hire someone new, you know, like they just like, they never look up from their book basically, you know? And until they are forced to, then someone's always going to get the kettle for them or mm -hmm. unclog their flooding bathtub or- It turns out if you just keep doing that, like, I don't know hands, they're like, ah. I, I've, I've seen that. <laughs> what are they referred to that as like weaponized- Oh, incompetence. Incomp yes. You've read the same articles. Uh, oh, I might have sent them to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, weapon weaponized incompetence is a real thing, people. It's a real thing. For those of you guys who don't know what it is, Google it. But if you're too lazy to Google it, then uh, we'll just like, like, you know, it's basically doing things poorly just so that someone else will do it for you. Just being like, hmm and just continuously be unwilling to learn. I've read so many articles where people are like, my husband's a neurosurgeon, but he can't work the dishwasher. Come <laughs> on. <laughs> like, you know you're smart enough. My husband's an engineer, but doesn't know how to turn on a washing machine. Like, all that kind of stuff. Like, there's just some things they don't want to do, so they just never learn to do it, like, very purposefully. So, yeah, I think we're seeing that all over the place. And I have seen some comments where people are getting kind of down on Janusz, Paul. I don't know if you know this where they think he was being a little too aggressive or a little too angry about Zelda needing to come over, what would you say to those people? I'd say that we might not have seen all of the ramp up. Rose and Abe's life that we get to see doesn't seem to have much change. So we have to look at Midge's life and say like, now she's doing much better in the writer's room. That was a very hard job to understand, to fit into. And now she's doing it and she's getting some traction. And so I think we're supposed to get that this wasn't just like two weeks later. This was some big amount of time, maybe a couple of months. And so we might not have seen all of Janusz's like, you don't have to work there anymore. All right, put in your two weeks notice. Okay. Uh, why are we going over there again? And then so maybe this is like the eighth time in two weeks when he's like stopping at the Weissman's apartment and he can't figure out why. Well, and I got to imagine all of the time that he witnessed Zelda creating the book 
right? I mean, I'm sure he was around whether she was like, I can't go to dinner. I need to sit and write out more pages about how to make tea or how to make a bed or where the towels are located. Or, you know, I'm sure there's been a lot of time taken away from their relationship as she has just prepared to even leave them. And it's got to feel like a kick in the neck for both of them to be over there, you know, trying to do, I mean, Zelda doesn't even take her coat off. She's like walking around with her coat and her purse, like, come on. like, And just some of the stuff, like, you don't know where your own linen closet is. I mean, you don't live in an estate with 5,000 closets. I mean, come on. And they've lived in this place. I mean, it's all of Miriam's life. Like, no one knew where the linen closet. I mean, come on. So, I mean, I know they take this obviously to like this absurd extreme for comedy's sake, you know, because nobody's really like this. But for everyone who's hating on Janusz, just put yourself in his shoes, you guys. I mean, and he did all that goodwill when they didn't even bother to know who he was. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, he was over there changing light bulbs and fixing things. So I, I think we got to give him a pass on this, that he is doing his very best. Know who else is doing her very best in this episode, but it's just falling apart? Well, Midge. Yeah. What do you think about this old Miriam week? This is a rough week for her. It's a tricky thing, I suppose, kind of that unquantifiable sense that some people in the talent industry have for being able to find the next it person, the next hit, the next whatever. And that doesn't mean that they're right all the time. And that doesn't mean that if they don't pick you that you're not it. It's just they're more right than they are wrong. And that's why they have that job. It just so happens that this guy, Jack Parr's guy, a gig anyway, that would have been very big for her, didn't jive with her. And that totally sucks. Okay, so when Danny Stevens is coming on to be on the show, right? And Midge gives the suggestion that he just be yourself. Just take what's really happening in your life, what's really happening in the book, and like you'll find the funny in that. Did your butt tighten up? Like worry that, oh God, this is going to be like... Danny Stevens is going to fall flat on his face and this is going to go so badly because that's what I looked at you. I was like, every time Mitch says stuff like this, she ends up getting like slapped around because this is always a terrible situation. So what did you think? A little bit. However, that kind of advice to someone that's not a Danny Stevens, I guess he's supposed to be like a Danny Kay type personality, like a professional actor, performer, comedian, like he he, he did the whole thing. He's producing his own shows. So maybe that advice in lesser hands would have been dangerous. But I think we're to understand like this guy is the captain of his own and several other ships. (laughs) So it's okay. But we didn't know that at the butt puckering moment. I was so nervous. I was like, I cannot have this be another pirate queen situation or another like, you know, her intentions are good, but they just don't. She just doesn't know how the, you know, the situation works. But man, did it ever work? I mean, it went really, really well. And some of the parts during Danny Stevens like interview did get a little nerve wracking, I guess, where you were like, oh, it is, is this going like too serious? You know, And but then he would twist it and make a joke out of it. And it was great. And it worked. And I was like, every time it happened, I like literally like exhaled like, oh, like he would start talking about the Holocaust. And I was like, oh, this isn't going to be good. But then he would like put a twist on it. And it was like, okay, all right, all right. You know, the audience is with him. Like he didn't make anyone feel too upset or anything. Like I was very nervous, but I thought it went really well. And then, you know, we have this whole scene at Toots. What do you think about Danny actually making an offer to Midge? I think he, I mean, he knows that he's a big deal, obviously. And he felt comfortable doing that in front of her boss, which 
is a big swing and dick kind of move. <laughs> you know, ideally, he could have known Gordon a little better and how Gordon would have reacted or that he could have made this a more private conversation. It is very intriguing, and I hope that it's not like a done deal. I mean, I know that the episode ends with a pay raise and all that, but trying her hand at more long-form writing couldn't hurt rather than just joke writing. Well, and this is where we actually thought this was going. Like, I, I was like, wondering if it was going to be like a I Love Lucy kind of situation where she was going to somehow get herself into a position of writing on a sitcom, you know, like that this was plausible and then sort of seeing like a Lucille Ball trajectory for her, you know, where maybe she's going to end up being on the show like well, that, that, you know, that like maybe a lot more that's sense where it than, was going to go. I mean, Joan Rivers as a template is probably not big enough in terms of like overall influence and wealth and all that for what they're showing us of Midge later. Yes, Joan could go places and be recognized and get a free dinner and all that kind of stuff. But was she like a little tycoon of things? I don't think so. I think Lucille Ball, though, that is a better match. I mean, she was so much more than what most people knew. You know, I mean, she was so much the brains behind the operation that really people do not understand. And it was, you know, it's fascinating. I was watching a, an interview with Lucille Ball and and, I, and I'm forgetting the host that she had because it wasn't someone that I recognized. And he was out in the audience taking questions. And every time that a woman would stand up, he would hold the mic for her, but then he would like, put his arm around her waist or put his arm around her shoulder or do something like that. And every time without fail, Lucille Ball would go, take your hands off of her and then I'll answer the question. Take your hands off of her every time. And it like it was embarrassing him so much, but she did not back down. She was like, take your hand off her hip, take your hand off her waist. Like it was amazing. And like, so I really, I felt like, I mean, kind Lucille of a Richard Ball, Dawson kind of guy. He was, but, and he didn't think he was doing anything wrong at all. And uh, and at the time, it's like Midge calling out the executive on the Pirate Queen episode previous about the, like, you stop touching her, stop touching. Like, that whole thing was, like, really well-documented little, like, you know, interview that's out there on YouTube you can see. And it it's just, it's one of those things where, like, she was willing to speak up. And Midge is willing to speak up in this world of all men that she's working with. She's willing to speak up. And she's willing to stand up for other women. And she's willing to stand up for herself. And I think there's a lot. And obviously, we saw with, like, Shy Baldwin and stuff like that. Like, she made every attempt, I think, sometimes maybe not as good as she could always, to really stand up for anyone who she felt like was not getting fair treatment. There was a lot going on in this episode that I felt like really did make me think of Lucille Ball. And then when this entire like push-pull was happening about her, I was feeling, I want to say, I guess conflicted about it because this entire push-pull between them wanting to pull her over to Danny's show and so then Gordon, you know, like ups her salary and and it it feels like they're bidding on property. It doesn't feel like they're negotiating a job with her because there's no direct negotiation with her. Gordon just ups her salary. There's no conversation. It's like it's like the two men are just negotiating with each other by playing with her. Does that make sense? That's accurate cuz she doesn't actually get to say, "You know what, Gordon, I want to hear more about Yeah, or this. take your take your promotion 
and keep it to yourself. I want a spot on the show. Or, you know, the fact that she's like, you know, it was like laughable. And they're like, now you make as much as the men, you know, like all that. I was like, oh, my God. The fact that she was sitting there doing the same amount of work as all of those men and really seemed like she was like leading a lot of those conversations and she wasn't even making as much as them. You know, you have to bang your head on the desk on that. But at the same time, do you get what I'm saying? Like it was like it was like Gordon and Danny were playing a game. Mitch wasn't even there playing, you know, but but her life was hanging in the balance. And I hope that this discussion is not over. It seems like Hank Azaria would be and I don't know this. I don't I haven't watched ahead, but it seems like he'd be big enough as a guest star to be like, well, maybe he's not a one episode wonder, <laughs> you know? Well, you know, I know that they are bringing on, you know, cast from other shows and stuff that they've been a part of. And certainly we know Hank Azaria has been a part of lots of voiceover work. And certainly Dan Palladino has been a part of that type of stuff. And we know Sutton Foster is like playing part of that as well in the on those like sitcom, you know, in the sitcom portion. So it's possible that it was just like a featured moment for them because they are people that Amy and Dan like to cast and stuff or are friends with. So I'm not sure. But the ending where like we got even like such a long time with Hank, it does make me raise my eyebrow. Like, what are we doing? What is what is this show? Didn't like that we remind you of like the black and white era of like WandaVision. It was like very much watching yes. like an impression of one of those old shows. Yes, a thousand thousand percent. Yes. So I'm not sure what's going on with the whole sitcom aspect. If this is gonna come back up and and it is not over and that's why we would cast like Sutton and, and Hank in those two roles. Maybe that's the truth of it. Or maybe it's like the roast where it's like, it's just this one-off kind of situation where we're going to feature all these cast members that we've enjoyed working with over the years. Cause this is like our last hurrah, you know, like we're, we're heading out on the series. So we're just throwing all our friends and family in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure which, I don't know how much weight to give it that we're spending so much time on that sitcom portion. It was curious, but we do know that the Paladinos have a quirk about pumping a little extra time into yes, things that just they a love. Odd. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. something a little quirky is correct. That is the right way to say it. I got to say, I was deeply hurt for Midge that the Jack Parr showcase went the way it went. I really thought that stunk. I mean, she did not deserve for that whole thing to go that way. And then to bring back James into this storyline and have him be like a good replacement for her. It was, I'm sure, commentary on like civil rights movement versus women's rights movement of this time, because that's what this would be all in the 60s right now. So, you know, if we all remember, James is um, is a black man and we have Midge, who's a woman. And it's like at the same time, they're both trying to kind of break into this white man's world in a lot of ways. Right. And so the fact that they were willing to take James, but they weren't willing to even really give Midge a, a second chance. You know, we're we're seeing a lot of societal change here. But again, Midge is like waiting for her chance, you know, like, okay, I guess we're not going to give you that chance yet. Painful. I thought it was painful. And and I thought that the way that Alex Borstein played Susie, the anguish on her face to have sat through that and heard laughter that that Midge got. And and we can only get this by she's explaining to us that that, that the other guys didn't get near as much laughs and to have them not book her purely because she was a woman. 
it just felt like, are we doing this again? You know, are we having to go all the way back to the start line because she wears a dress? You know, like, ah. Well, I mean, the headway that she makes is kind of person by person. Every every little advance that she makes isn't universal, sadly. So, yeah, we do. With every new person, she has to win them over. I think that's part of the story for Ridge, for the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It just reminds us that, like, you know, every single time you think she's having, you know, she got a promotion. She's getting paid as much as a man, right? That's a yay. Then you have the Jack Parr showcase. You're a woman. We won't even look close at you. Whoa. <laughs> you know, like, dang, like one step forward, 20 steps back. You know, like we're trying. What did you think about Susie trying to manipulate James and be like, you know what? I, do, I want you to pass on this to try to kind of manipulate the situation. Like you can't just pick another one of my clients at will. Like I'll decide where my clients work. Well, that's better friending than it is managing, I'm afraid because she's also James's manager, you know, and he needs his shot too. I a thousand percent agree. I a thousand percent agree. I, I think that it's funny that you said it that way because I believe in a previous episode, they said that was the mistake they tried to be friends too, mm. you know, beyond being like client and manager. The, the big mistake they made was trying to be friends. Mm -hmm. And so, and then that's really at the end of the day, it is because Susie's so invested, but also to be completely fair, Mitch was her first client. Like, why shouldn't she have more allegiance to her? She's the first one who, who gave her a chance, you know, who was willing to, like, you know, hitch her wagon to Susie's star. In a way, you want to say, I don't know, it's just seniority. It's not friendship. You know, it's just like, hey, this person's been working longer than you have. They deserve the break. The thing is that there's no reason to think that James turning down the job does anything keep James from having a job. <laughs> it doesn't actually, you know, the booker for the Jack Parr show's feelings aren't going to be hurt. You right. know, he's yeah. going to be like, whatever. He's going to pick the next person, you know? So it's not like, you know, ooh, burn, you really got them. Like, it's a petty thing to try to do, and it doesn't really help anyone. Well, and there's even some chance that it hurts Susie if this guy sees her as difficult to work with. You know, at this point, she's not that established that he couldn't just totally ignore her a thousand percent and you know obviously james is up and coming in his own way so i mean it is such a dance like it would be so difficult to be like putting this one client forward and like really trying to like you know shine up their halo and make them look like the one everyone wants and then i don't know it kind of reminds me of like a this is going to sound real silly but like, remember like the the three stooges like the the like 90s version they're like in the orphanage do you remember that and they would all like it's squeaky clean but like the parents would come in and they would always choose like the child like right behind them yeah. like they never chose them it felt like that it felt like she was putting midge forward with you know her hair neatly parted and her skin squeaky clean and it was like they went like uh, i'll take james <laughs> you know and it was like oh <laughs> so i think Susie just she obviously has a lot of love and respect for Midge and like, wants her to be successful here. I can't wait to find out what the freaking big break's going to be, Paul, because I thought it was going to be the Jack Parr show. Like every single time something happens, I'm like, this is it. This is going to be the one. If you look at how many times they've put a great opportunity in front of her and then they yank the rug and it's like, nope, it wasn't a sitcom. Nope, it wasn't going to be on the Gordon Ford show. Nope, she doesn't get picked for the Jack Parr showcase. It's like, 
tell us what it is. How does she become successful? What the heck is it? You know? Yeah, no kidding. I want to know. We're getting down to it. Yes, I'm very ready. And you know, when she is finally back home and having to deal with the water in the apartment and having Rose be so pissed at her, and you know, water is, you know, people are calling, the neighbors are calling and everyone. And she's just realizing like how much she feels like she's letting everyone down. She isn't being the mother that, you know, she in that conversation, like, I didn't even tell you not to do the drain. And, and she's got her parents yelling at her about, you know, if you should have told him not to put it down the drain, that stuff. But even down to like the little things, like, I don't know why you'd have to replace an entire bathtub because there was something in the drain. I, <laughs> This is all like, wow. But the whole toilet tub thing matching, there was something about that that I know that that's so small, but it is such a control your environment, control the aesthetic, control the things you can control that it seemed so silly and so small. But to have her like the look on her face to be like, if I want a pink toilet and a pink tub, you know, like then that's what we're going to have, you know, because it's like, for God's sake, let me have a win. You know, I need something here. And that's how I was feeling for her. Like she was just standing in that bathroom thinking, for God's sake, let me have something work out here. And this was an episode where nothing worked out for her. You know, this was this was rough. And we find out with a little like flash forward in 73, Things are still going to get harder and harder, too, though. You know, like we still have health issues with parents. We still have other things happening. So, you know, it's it's not going to be a smooth road coming. Do you have any predictions or anything that you really want to hit on for like next episodes? Again, we're coming down to it. Next episode. So this is number seven. I think there's 10 this episode or sorry, this season. So there are three left eight nine ten. We do need to come up. This was this was a, a dip in our forward progress. So we have to build and I don't think it should all be at once. I mean, it has the point of this whole show has been the steady progression toward her goal of fame and fortune. So I think we have to get a lifeline. We have to get some sort of indicator that a bright road is ahead next episode. She may not get to do it next episode, but I think she gets whatever that is, whether it's the situation with Danny Stevens, is is more enticing or made more enticing gordon lets up with his restriction on being on the show something has to maybe not give next episode but start to give i'm a little bit concerned from a from an audience point of view that the paladinos have a long-standing history of not showing you the big things there could be a wedding, there could be a birth of a child, there could be a divorce, there could be whatever, and you're just told about it later, but you don't necessarily see it. And so I'm a little bit worried that we aren't going to see the big break, which would feel to me right at this moment, like scandalous. (laughs) Like I'd be like, how could you put us through this and not show us the big moment? But they don't do that all the time, you know, and it's same. It's uh, there's yeah. plenty of people who do that on other shows, too, where, you know, the really big things happen off screen and they just tell you about it later. It's like uh, you might see her take the stage at Carnegie Hall, uh-huh. but not actually see the set. Something right. like that. Right. Or she gets the call and she's like, I'll be right down. But that's all we get. 
you know, and then Susie says, like, that was a great show last night. You really knocked him dead, but we don't get to see it. Right. You know, that was a like, once in a lifetime show you put on last night. I'm glad I was there. Exactly. <laughs> and and I, so a little bit I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm really imploring our listeners to buckle up on that fact because we know these creators and you and I have loved a lot of different writers and creators who have this same tactic. You know, I mean, I loved the series Your Honor. They were notorious for choosing really big moments to happen off screen and instead you get these quieter conversations in between telling how people feel about that big event you didn't get to see but it happened this will be fascinating to me how they choose to unveil these last couple of episodes and how much they choose to show us versus tell us and how much they you know i've heard this and i'm still oh i don't know how i feel about this paul They've said the ending is kind of ambiguous. Like there's more than one way to take how it ends, which worries me <laughs> because I'm like, I hope, I hope, I hope after all this watching and all these wonderful episodes that one of the possibilities lands very well for me in my own heart. You know, yeah. I'm hoping it's not like, well, these are the lesser of two ugh options that I didn't really want for Midge. I'm super hoping it's something that I'm jazzed about. Well, you know, Amazon has more expensive shows, but this is probably one of their more critically upheld shows. So I'd imagine that if the Paladinos weren't going to stick the landing in a way that they didn't want to pay for, I bet they would send a note. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, and but here's the thing. There are plenty of wonderful, wonderful series that end without it being like you could choose your own adventure at the end like not really sure i mean certainly lost is one of those right where some people are okay with the way that they felt about it some people felt like it was they didn't it wasn't clear enough and they wanted something more clear you know some of those things like for me i'm okay i don't necessarily need everything spelled out for me and i'm kind of okay for different people with coming from different points of view to take different things away from a finale and be like you know what at the end of the day it was about Miriam's whatever. Or at the end of the day, it was Susie's story. Or at the end of the day, it's Esther's story. Or whatever the heck. I don't know how they're going to twist and pull on us to make us have these alternate options. But I'm willing to be open to them. I trust them. I, I am uh, so much of a fan of theirs that I feel like I, I have to warn others. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just keep your powder dry. Because I think it's going to be great, but you got to be open to it. This is Caroline. And this is Paul. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that other people can find it as well. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.